Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. In this episode, Christy and I discuss uh, whether free will exists or not, some of the consequences for both of those possibilities, and that brings us into discussions of morality, agency, and even the nature of reality itself. We also discuss complex systems and Plato's theory of forms. It's a deep yet necessary dive into what it means to truly have a human experience. Enjoy. Cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information and the resulting confusion and anxiety from the difficulty to resolve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Maybe we can start here then. Um, Because I have, I've been... I've been grappling the past couple days with the implications of what I've been looking at to prepare for this. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of a conclusion that I came to, I don't know, probably about a decade ago now, that one of the inherent problems with philosophy is it's really easy to philosophize your way out of like anything meaning anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in order to operate and function effectively in the world, we have to dial that back. Right. Like you said, we have to put our blinders yeah. on. Well, I feel like it's one of those things where you try and get to the bottom of it and then you realize there's no bottom at all and you're just floating. You're like, I'm going to keep digging down. And then, oh, no, <laughs> there's yeah. nothing. And that's there is what the no philosophy is like. Yeah. Well, I mean, not only that, but the shovel's fake too. Well, yeah, and 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 that's that's where it gets tricky. Um, and in fact, in a preparation for this, up until last night, I was approaching this from a very theoretical, philosophical, and metaphysical perspective. Mm-hmm. And then last night, I found. Two things. Um, in fact, let me go ahead and go through this then. Since we're going to do it, um, I read a chapter out of the neuro, Neuroscience of Adolescence. In preparation for this, that was interesting. I read a couple chapters out of James Lindsay's new book, Race Marxism, to get in a better grapple of structural determinism and some of the frameworks that would argue against free will. Mm-hmm. And then I did my best to read some of Frederick Nietzsche's the will to power, um, which is awesome. I, I love Nietzsche, um, but I hate reading Nietzsche with the purpose because he's so freaking thought provoking to me that it's like every other sentence I have to stop and write something down, you know, right. he is, he's, he's just so profound about stuff. Um, and that this one, this book in particular, the will to power is a collection of his notes so it's not organized in a book form. It's scribbles. Um, note 744 is a paragraph and a half. Note 745 is one sentence, stuff like that. 
Um, mm-hmm. But it's really interesting because you can chart his descent into nihilism and then his reasoning himself back out of it. And then his descent mm-hmm. into nihilism with his next epiphany and then his reasoning himself back out of it. And it's, it's, it's really neat to, to watch that. I also read a couple read anybody that's been through graduate school knows what we mean by read when we're trying to prepare for something right speed read Mm -hmm. um and then you just hone in on the interesting bits but i read like two or three academic journal articles um and i did i started out with a very philosophical and like metaphysical do we need does humanity need free will in order to operate in a functional metaphysic um and then last night I stumbled across that chapter in the neuroscience of adolescence and um, a couple critiques of Benjamin LeBay. He's a psychologist um, from the mid or mid mid twentieth century. You know who I he did is? read. Yeah, I read that one, um, and then I noticed today that you were reading a response to it. Um, yeah. It, that's a great starting point for me because he's like, well, this is what our brain is doing. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's that's and why I like... That's where it all starts. I, I feel adequately underprepared now because the original perspective <laughs> I was coming from has been shaken. Um, and I... The physiological perspective... Um, it's captivating me right now with decision response times and um, well, uh, what does he call it? Response, response potential in the neurons, yeah. right? How they, they kind of pre-charge in anticipation of making a decision. Right. Like right, which, they which prepare really themselves yeah. for you to have an idea and which you can see really like someone have a thought or something occur to them. Yeah. So there's something that happens before, like at a pre-conscious level. But I, like the one thing I really like from this article is that he defined what would constitute free will. And he says there should be no external control or cues to affect the occurrence or emergence of the voluntary act under study, which is impossible in my opinion. However, (laughs) moving on, he said the subject should feel that they wanted to do it under their own initiative and feel that they could control what was being done, when to do it, when not to do it. Um, And those were kind of two things, which to define something as a feeling, like it's a good definition. I'm glad that he tried, but I think it's a terrible definition um, because like the subject should feel that they wanted to do it is the most subjective thing ever. And you can make someone feel Like they wanted to choose, you know, that's what advertising does is you make them feel like you chose McDonald's. I mean, this is something that is, we do all the time. Like, oh yeah, you made that decision. You chose to go to Nordstrom today and spend $200. Um, But, you know, it's the result of external stuff. Yeah. And that is something that I want to get to later. Um, Not to, not to sound like I'm, throwing a bid in with the postmodernist or anything like that, but there's kernels of truth there. Um, and I do want to return to that. Can you hear the bird? I can. Okay. Um, but it's not super distracting. 
I mean, if, and if she keeps it up, I'll go cover her again. I don't want to because she, you treat an animal like it's a nuisance and it's going to start behaving like it's a nuisance, right? The same way that kids do, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I think she's fine because she's not a ear pierce for me. She's not like ear piercing or screeching at all. She's just doing her little, okay. little chirps. Which means it, it should be fine for the audience then. Um, yeah. So audience, if I don't end up having to cut all of this out. You're welcome for that little bit of behind the scenes there. Um, <laughs> no, re- returning back to the topic though, I did, I sat down and I put together a definition of free will as well. Um, Ooh. See if I can find it. This I define, is... go ahead. Oh, defining things is a huge part of what like my graduate practice ended up being like coming up with a definition that is we use clear objective and complete and it usually has examples and non-examples and this was something that I was trained in again and again so I am uh very picky about definitions but that said I could not come up with something for free will so if I'm overly critical it's entirely unfounded because I had gotten nothing no that's fine it's by all means, be as critical as you can be, because the more that we poke holes, the more we can refine. Um, because I do, I do think that the Socratic dialogue that we have in these podcasts is a not the only, but it is a surefire way to um, find our way towards truth. Right. Because it is the same thing when you're trying to reason about whether you did something right or wrong and you're consulting your conscience, what are you doing? You're talking to yourself and you're responding mm-hmm. to yourself. Right. It is that dialogue that that has that revelatory. Um, but no, back to the definitions, it's, it's really hard to because same thing, graduate school for me. Um, if you're going to argue something or try and prove a point, you have to be as clear and pointed about that as possible. Otherwise um, you're not going to, you're not going to convey your thoughts accurately and efficiently. And this is something I try and get my students to, to practice when they're writing something or trying to make an argument, assume that your reader has zero prior content knowledge that forces you as the writer or the arguer or the point maker to clearly define everything you're talking about, to front load all of that context that's going with the the nuance of your point. So that way it doesn't miss. Um, How I, I don't know if this would be good for free will or just will itself. And I think that might be just an argument of semantics or or splitting hairs or whatever. Um, But I define it as intentionality combined with actionability. Right. So um, an exercise of will would be intentionality, a desire, a passion or a goal, along with the capacity to actually manifest the behaviors concurrent with that intentionality. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's better than uh, Benjamin LeBay's definition. (laughs) Um, because it doesn't, you don't have to feel anything Mm -hmm. in order to meet this definition or report. Like I felt like I did that. Um, yeah, I think that says a lot for what the 
spirit of free will is like you are trying to do something and it is something that you do. I don't think free will is something that you feel or is something that you can like call upon. It's- well, no, because I can, I can sit and I can have thoughts or ideas or beliefs. Um, but unless they're actionable, then that's all they will ever be. Right. Whereas in the same breath, we have, um, oh man, I forget his name, but are you familiar with the, the free energy principle? I think I sent it to you probably about a year ago now. Um, Sounds familiar. I think it was a physicist or maybe a biologist um, recognized that in metabolic creatures, there's no such thing as free energy. Mm -hmm. Right. We, I mean, we store our energy to be used, but like there's limits. That's why when you see kids that like literally cannot sit still, it's not because they're hyperactive. It's because they need to go burn off that energy. Right. So in, in, in that sense, there are, there are behaviors that manifest without intentionality. Yeah. And, and I would feel comfortable arguing that those non-intentional, meaning the non-pointed behaviors are not expressions of free will. They might be expressions of will, right? To have power over your body to do something, but whether that's pointed or intentional, Mm, you know, maybe not. Does the reflexive scratching of your leg because you got bit by a mosquito constitute an act of free will? Or is it just in action? I do think if you are pro-free will, uh, which I am not, um, there is like a theoretical line that you put in human behavior where above this point, you know, these behaviors are so complex that they have to be free will, but the really simple behaviors wouldn't be free will. And I think that that line between simple and complex behaviors is arbitrary. Um, I think that like me thinking and speaking is extremely complicated and it's difficult to predict. There's a lot of factors that go into it, Um, but I don't see it as fundamentally different as me falling asleep or me eating food, I think. Um, so it's difficult for me to, like, because I loop everything that people do in the same bucket to say some of it's free will, some of it isn't, is, uh, it feels like picking, like, well, my definition works now. Um, just because if, I think we could all agree that falling asleep is not an act of free will. It feels more subjectively it's like an act of submission like you can't really choose to do it if you really really want to sleep i mean anyone with like insomnia will tell you that it is not free will you cannot will yourself asleep it just has to happen right so um how is that different than thinking or picking out what you want to eat for breakfast um there's a lot of ways that it's different but i think the the foundations built on is your brain and comes from the same place well, and, and that's, that's interesting because under that reasoning, you could make the argument that we don't have thoughts. Our thoughts have us. 
right? And then if that's the case, if we're, if we can't will ourselves to have a thought, then where do they come from? If it's just the happenstance of physiological actions happening in the brain, um, which I don't think it is, because I do. It, you, you, no, no, hang on. Let, let me let me let me reframe or rephrase that that last section really quick, rather than presenting it the the original way that I was going to. Um, I don't feel that consciousness can be the result of randomly organizing static and inorganic materials together in the right way. My next question would be, when you say consciousness, um, what do you mean? I would define consciousness as well i i can I can tell you how other people would define consciousness or at least would explain parameters for what would constitute consciousness um and we we've talked about it before, and so I don't want to beat a dead horse about it, but John Verveke is a cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto. Um, and he he operates under the 4E model of consciousness, this, that consciousness is embedded, enacted, extended, and embodied, right? So it's it's not like there's the Holy Spirit of consciousness floating around just waiting for a new vessel to act in, right? Being embodied is part of that consciousness. Um, but to further refine that, I would say that consciousness is... in awareness and self-awareness with which to be an active agent in the world, however we define the world. Mm -hmm. I think, so going back like in history a little bit, to me, consciousness comes from dualism, which is, to me, and this is kind of extrapolating a little bit, but the reason that dualism, the idea that you have a mind and a body and those things work together, but they are different things. Um, to me, that came from the idea that when humans were beginning to do autopsies and discovering the human body and how it worked and the brain versus the heart, like where our thoughts are. At a certain point, we realized that the brain as an organ was the place where our thinking took place through, you know, getting in there, which made a lot of people extremely uncomfortable because doing autopsies was uncool for a lot of the religious, like people. It, it was, 
it seemed wrong. And to combat that, that resistance to these discoveries, someone came up with dualism to say, well, yes, this is the human body. This is how it works, but your religious stuff is still true because of dualism. And I think that that has done a lot of harm to science. It worked in the moment because it allowed people to discover things about the human body without being murdered by churches in like medieval Europe. But what it did was allow for something that's not based in science to exist with science, like saying, you know, I discovered that thoughts come from your brain, um, but your mind is, could be from God. I don't know. I'm not going to make that statement. And it worked at the time. And I think it's done a lot of harm because it's left room for people to say like, you know, you got cancer because you're a bad person. Like, God gave you this and you have schizophrenia because, you know, you are an idiot. And it leaves this sort of gray area for these biological phenomenons that are strictly biological. Um, and so bringing that back to consciousness, the idea that there is something separate from the body, from the cells, that is influencing how we act and what we do, I'm not sure is coming from a place of progress and like open discovery of the human body, but more of a place of like, I don't want to piss off, um, you know, this giant conglomerate of people who believe that they're special God-given beings with um, a special spark inside from somewhere else. And all of that comes with the caveat that I do think there are things that influence us that are not measurable. Like, you know, we are probably affected by like different vibrations and different electric whatever in the air. And like our behaviors affected by like lead and gasoline. And so there are things that don't come from the body that affect us. And those things could be considered metaphysical. Um, so I don't know, that's kind of hypocritical, but both of those things can exist at the same time for me that I don't know about all this consciousness stuff. But I do think that there's definitely another page to the story of why we think and why we act in such complicated and kind of profound ways that uh, we don't have the whole story right now, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, and you could argue that we're never going to, because once you do have the whole story, then what's the point of anything past that, Right. Um, and you do bring up an interesting point in that phenomenon that you describe is called God in the gaps, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, we've charted out this much and we don't know how this rest happens. So it must be divine in some way, shape or form. Um, 
I, I wonder though, and we've, we've talked about this before, but just to briefly touch on it and then we'll go back to what any of this has to do with free will or the lack thereof. Um, No one has been able to, with any semblance of accuracy whatsoever, scientifically explain or describe how inorganic material reality combines together to generate consciousness, right? It's that whole, oh, we have the same fundamental building blocks that rocks do, but because we're in the right order, now all of a sudden we're haunted and we have thoughts, right? That's, that's a really, really big gap there. And I'm not saying there's something spiritual or divine or, or supernatural about it, but for all we know, consciousness and higher order thinking and free will could be part of the theory of everything without contradicting anything that you just said about the physical primacy of everything, right? Because we haven't gotten that far. Um, I do. And this is something that I struggled with preparing for this. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that because I don't, I don't want to dive into that part yet. We still need to lay out a couple, couple bricks. Um, so that way, A, we know where we're going with this conversation and B, our audience can follow along. So you mentioned earlier that you are a proponent of team no free will. Why? Indeed. For me, it's purely pragmatic. Um, if there is a person who has committed grand theft auto and they've stolen a car and they go to jail, if that person chose to do that, and that is a purely internal thing, then, well, they did choose to do it, but if there was nothing else in the environment that was causing them to do that, and it just came from inside then there's nothing that I can do as a psychologist or someone in a helping profession to reach them and help them change and not commit crimes in the future. But if that day that person forgot to take their meds, um, they got really drunk the night before and they were super hungover, they just got in a fight with their girlfriend and then they stole that car. And these external factors are what's leading them to commit this crime. That's something that I can manipulate and help. I can set up a plan for them to remember to take their meds more often. And I can give them some coping skills to deal with interpersonal conflicts with their girlfriend. And we can work on different socially safer environments for them besides bars um, or a better way for them to track how much they've drank. And if I can take away those external factors and then they don't steal the car, I feel like I could help someone in that scenario. But if they just chose to do that and that's just came from within, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to help this person? 
So I prefer to believe that there's something external and real that is influencing that person to act that way that I can contact and change. This is, of course, assuming that if you remove all the external stimuli, that they would still make the same decision, in which case, if they would still make the same decision without the external stimuli, are they choosing anything? Um, right. and, 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 and I think, not, not to cut you off on your answer there, because that was kind of more rhetorical than anything. Um, I think that we have to nuance or further refine our definition of free will because that intentionality plus actionability piece does not exclude influencers, right? It's not like for something to be an authentic expression of free will, you have to have, I mean, I guess metaphysically speaking, if you define it as such, that free will has to be an implemented, intentional, and actionable expression of behavior that has zero external influence. But that's not possible. Right. And that was Benjamin right. LeBay's definition. I was that's, like, Dude, that's nothing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's that's that's not possible. I think I think that's too harsh and um, ungracious. And by ungracious, I mean not giving enough grace to what we don't know. Um, because part of that consciousness is being embodied and embedded, right? Yeah. Being conscious I mean, agents, how, how we understand and make conscious decisions in the world is based on our embodiment in the world and our embeddedness in that environment too, right? It's, it's a, it's a um, set of tandem skydivers. They're independent, but they can't exist without each other. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I, I think going back to my intentionality and actionability, it's not where the, the decision to enact a behavior originates, whether it is a decision made wholly in a vacuum or influenced by external stimuli. That, that's a different discussion that I don't want to have. Rather, um, I think it's the, the choosing, if that makes sense. It is that, that act of deciding because you you can be i'm sorry animals all around the freaking neighborhood are going crazy right now um no you can you can choose how am i trying to say this you can be presented with a set of stimuli and decide to respond to that stimuli in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. Now, what I would say is the argument that we need to have about free will versus not free will is whether the decision that you make out of that limited possibility you have any control over or if 
those stimuli narrowing down your range of possibilities and then your eventual decision to act is all predicated on and only on those external factors and influences. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's something else that like people with the non, like there is no free will argument tend to argue that the fact that I could predict someone's behavior means that they don't have free will but I don't think that those things are incompatible. Like if I put every influence that's ever been on me into a computer, it could predict my next action perfectly. But that doesn't mean I didn't choose it. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't free will, even if a computer knew what I was going to do. There's been dozens of experiments too that always, like there's always the exception to every rule. Mm -hmm. Right, so you could plug in all of those influences into a computer model and it'll give you a predicted outcome. But there's always going to be that one person that for that day, for whatever reason, is like, you know what? I'm going to choose Pepsi over Coke today. <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and, and I mean, I guess you could argue that that goes back to that day. They had a different set of external stimuli that influenced their decision, blah, 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 blah. Um, right. Like the computer could predict that their body temperature was like two degrees lower or something. It, that led yeah. to something else. But yeah. So I don't think that that's a good argument against free will. The fact that human behavior is in all likelihood completely predictable. Um, just because, you know, but it's if not a, just because a computer knows. Because here's here's the thing, and this is something that I was reading in one of the the articles that I read earlier today. Um, maybe it was last night. That once we apply understandings of non-Newtonian sciences, like quantum mechanics, then predictability goes out the window. And this is, I'm not, I'm not a physicist. I've never claimed to be a physicist. I don't math in public if I can avoid it. Um, but quantum mechanics is a de- deterministic system that is unpredictable. So by logic, it doesn't make sense that you couldn't have a predictable system that's undeterministic if that makes sense, right? So we, we, have, we have things like, like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle where if you know the momentum or the position of a subatomic particle, you can utilize the equation to find the opposite. But the problem is, say you have an electron's momentum and you use Heisenberg's formula to get its position, the answer it gives you in the formula is a range. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, if you have its position, you can do the math to find out what its momentum is slash was, but it's going to give you a range of possibility. That's why any any accurate in, in modern models of um, the shape of atoms or whatever, it, it has the electron cloud, right? Somewhere in this orbit, <laughs> there is what we're looking for. Um, we're not quite sure where it is because we don't have the math that can say it's here moving at this speed because it's too small and too, too fast. And it's gone the moment that you measure it. Well, when you measure something like that, the, you know, 
whatever's happening in that moment has changed and moved on. So your math yeah. is already eons old in it'd be like calculating where the earth was and it took you so long that by the time you did it, it was 33 years later and it's in a completely yeah. different spot in the solar system. But even though it's an unpredictable system, right? When you, um, if you have a subatomic particle and you send it out into space in a tunnel and that tunnel splits and you can send that tunnel for thousands of light years out and at the end of each tunnel, there's a sensor to let you know out, out of which end the subatomic particle went through. Up until it's measured, up until you get that signal for which one it came out of, it is statistically in both places at the same time. Right? Mm -hmm. It's unpredictable. Yeah. However, once you get that information, that wave function will collapse and it will be deterministic right that photon mm -hmm. is going to emerge out of the end of the tunnel um you know that electron is going to move at this velocity at this position at some point it's just not predictable and i think if we flip that and, and apply that dichotomy to macro world us the reality that we can interact with um I don't think it's unreasonable to say that we can have a predictable existence that's not deterministic. That's interesting um, because determinism is kind of the backbone of my interactions with science. It's my favorite philosophy for it Gee, because I don't know if we can be friends anymore. <laughs> I. I thrive off of the idea that there are laws and we just have to find them and repeat yeah, that, the test enough times to say, this is probably it. And that's true. And, and I think this is where you and I differ because even though um, we both have degrees in the social sciences, yours is more of a, or at least your focus because, I mean, the psychology is a very wide branch. You can do a lot of things with it. Um, yeah. And I, think, and I would include I, think, <laughs> I would well, include teaching under the branch of psychology because yeah. it's hardly and it, different. And, I mean, it's two degrees in history. History is a social science as well because that's what got me interested in history is understanding why these people felt the way they did, believed the way they did, acted the way they did at the time that they did. Um, mm -hmm. it, it is that that psychological aspect which is terrible because any good historian will tell you to practice psychohistory is like just shoving your career down the toilet you know because you do have to make some of these assumptions and then things start getting really wonky um but we're still the same people that we were for the most yeah part. but um, i think it can be done that that focus on the the hard sciences and the physical laws um once we start talking about social institutions, the nature of existence in reality, you know, we take it one step up from the physical laws to the metaphysical laws. I think things get different um, because part of, and this is maybe now's a good time to get into it. This is part of what I struggled with the past week or two while preparing for this. And it's part of what I've struggled with against, um, 
structural determinism and critical theory and postmodernism and and all of the we'll call them liberation theologies or ideologies. Um, once you start tiptoeing down the realm of determinism, when we're talking existentially, maybe even phenomenologically, um, very quickly you get down to what's the point, right? It can yeah. be very reductionistic very quickly, right? So to take Karl Marx's idea of material determinism, right? That everything about you, everything about your life from your belief systems to how much you weigh is determined by your access to material goods. Therefore, you have no internal locus of control for any of that, right? Once you start tiptoeing down that path, the next step is going to your example earlier about you know, the client that hypothetical client that stole a car, um, right? When it, if those actions are determined by access to material goods or structural determinism is, is how the neo-Marxists and the, the critical theorists and critical race theorists would discuss it now, that everything that defines your character is predefined by the structures that are imposed upon you through society, then the reason we're having this podcast right now is not because we want to, but it's simply the result of those structural forces, right? There would be no choice to steal the car. He stole the car because of the result only of the structural forces that were imposed on him. There's, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no excellence, there's no failure, there's no morality in that sense. There, if, if, we, if we don't have, and this is, this is what I was struggling with a lot from the metaphysical side, um, if we don't have if we can't be active agents, then we don't have morality. Literally the very thing that our entire criminal justice system and understanding of justice is based off of is the fact that you can make a wrong decision or you can make a good decision. Therefore, we need to incentivize good decisions and de-incentivize bad decisions. If we if we follow that that determinism, that structural determinism, material determinism, however it is you want to frame it, if we follow that determinism down, then all of that goes away. Why do we have a criminal justice system? Why do we have morality? Why do we care what other people do? There's there's nothing anybody can do to influence that. And if I were to influence someone else's decisions, it's not because I'm moral. It's because I've had structural forces imposed on me that have predetermined right? It's the same thing with fate or destiny. Um, you go back to, you know, the 1600s, 1700s with the Calvinists and um, the pilgrims that, you know, if, if things are already predetermined and we're just living our life to get to that point, then what is the point? We simply exist to reach that predetermined goal and then we cease to exist. Like, it's not hard to take that one step further and justify just not living. 
I, yes, it is a problem. Um, because of all the reasons you just said to say there is no free will, everything happens to you. Uh, you don't happen to anything, (laughs) but, um, I think having, I don't know, and this is where it gets pretty cyclical for me, but if you view jail and prison as an entity that is acting upon you rather than sort of a gear in the system, then it can feel like, what's the point? But this is, in my opinion, jail and the criminal justice system is something that we set up to make the environment uh, to incentivize people using the environment to do good. And it doesn't always work. Usually doesn't work. Um, most people yeah, that's, who contact... That's, an entirely yeah. different conversation that I'm not prepared to have today because I do believe that the, especially the United States criminal justice system is not set up for rehabilitation. It's set up for monetary funds. This is true. Um, right. But, but the other thing, let, let's table that place, and keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to, uh, so let's say like social disappointment or like social pressure, I would be mortified if I got arrested and I had to tell people about it it would be the most aversive, hardest thing for me to do. And the thought of having to admit like to my boss's Monday, like, sorry, I'm late. I had to post bail. I would rather die. Um, So I'm not going to commit a crime because I don't want to do, because the environment is set up for me in a way to keep me out of jail because I don't want to. Um, And if I had no one in my life who would care and if I didn't have anything to look forward to um, and if 500 bucks sounds pretty good then maybe I would rob a gas station because there's nothing keeping me from doing that Um, because I either get away with 500 bucks or I go to jail who cares it's not that bad I won't miss out I'll be out in three months blah 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 so I don't see yeah, we are able to influence our social environment to work for us. And just because we don't have free will and everything that we do is based on the environment, there we can manipulate the environment and in a way that's going to work for us. And we do that every day. Like I drink coffee to get myself energy in the morning. That's me manipulating the environment. I ran a 5K this morning because I signed up for it and I already spent the money. And if I didn't go, I would have lost money. So I I went. So all of those things, I think, you know, I don't know. It's hypocritical to say I set up those things so that I made a good choice this morning and I exercised. And I find it quite... Like, I don't feel very hopeless when I admit I wouldn't have done these things if there wasn't some pressure to do it. And because uh, I feel like I can be in control of that pressure based on how I set things up for myself. And that's that's that 
point that I'm identifying as free will. Yeah, that makes that sense. Because we can be active agents, because we can manipulate our environment, because we can be aware and reflective enough to know that if I go ahead and set the start time on my coffee pot to automatically go on in the morning, I'm going to have an easier time getting out of bed. Right. I might be incentivized. There might be pressures pushing me in that direction, but I'm still feeding into or taking out of that system. Right. Now that that there are there are those kernels of truth there with the the determinist crowds and the postmodernist crowds, which would essentially say that it's all just an illusion anyway. Everything's a social construct. Um and it's those social constructions that impose influence on us in such a way as to eliminate our agency. But I don't think that people do not have agency. It might be limited. It might be bounded in some way. But I think we still have wiggle room, right? So, like, I might... You think some people have more agency than others? Yes, but I don't know what that means for our free will discussion. So I read um, in this one part of the chapter that I read in the neuroscience of adolescence was um, definition of cognition. Mm -hmm. um and then let's see i I marked it too um history of the prefrontal cortex because that's one of the the regions of the brain that differentiates us from the rest of the animal kingdom um right so our our prefrontal cortex is roughly 25 percent of our total brain matter um which is proportionately the highest of all animals i think the next closest animal is like 15 percent or 12% of their total brain mass is the prefrontal cortex. That's where Can we all talk of our... about too? Well, it's a very important part of our brain and it's in the most uh, exposed part. It's the most likely place to get damaged just because of where it sits in our and, brain. And that's and that's, that's, well, that's where I'm going to with it. Not necessarily that, that. Now it's at the front because it's the most recent evolution. Like literally the farther back you go in the brain and the farther down to the brainstem you get, the farther back in time you go. Mm -hmm. um, right. That's why you, you have your, your more reptilian brain of the amygdala, the fight or flight systems, those reflexive and behavioral things. And then you have your abstract conceptualization and planning that occurs in the mammalian part of the brain, which is, you know, a couple hundred thousand years younger than the but that and that's that's what i was thinking about right so if the pre prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that allows us to have executive function um abstract abstractly conceptualize things to have this conversation about whether we have free will or not in a coherent and cohesive manner um then we could make an argument that that would be the biological region from which consciousness slash free will is either emanates from or it's the receptor for those, right? Because I'm still undecided. I don't think the, the material creates the consciousness. I think the field of consciousness allows there to be 
the material. Um, but th- that's that's a different conversation. Um, well, what it's always interest- fun to like, you know, it's technically the least important area of the brain because you can lose almost all of it and still be a living, breathing, talking human being. Yeah. All of your reflexive behaviors, such as breathing and digestion, right? Like the 90% of our bodily functions that happen unconscious to us would still occur. But that got me thinking, right? So people that have prefrontal cortex damage um, can't navigate complex tasks the same way that an undamaged prefrontal cortex can. Right. Once you get past the first or second tier of a complex task, like then you start losing those people. Mm-hmm. Therefore, by by literal and technical definition, right? So this isn't about a conversation of free will and the and the philosophy of that. This is like a technical definition of if you were to do an fMRI brain scan of these of those people with the injured prefrontal cortex, that yes, they do indeed have less agency because the the capabilities that their brain would allow them to do is therefore also limited. Mm-hmm. And then I don't, I, that got me thinking about free will. Like if intentionality and actionability is how we define free will, then those that can have less intentionality or less actionability, do they have less free will? if a damaged prefrontal cortex is the only thing separating me from being a vegetable agent versus an active agent, then what does that mean for will in general or free will? However it is, however it is you want to define it at that point. Right. Um, And this is when, when you were talking at the very beginning about the physical and biological systems and structures that allow us to be a living thing um you know what what other than the act of electrical charges in the nervous system causing all of the other organs to function what separates a living body from a dead body materially they are the exact same mm-hmm. right there's what 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 is what is that animus that flips that light switch what is that light switch connected to where is that power source coming from like obviously we're metabolic creatures that power source like we eat food and that gets turned into electro um, electrochemical charges that go through the brain that therefore continue motion to allow us to get more food and continue that process um but you know at, at, at what point and I guess this could be a conversation too on the flip side at what point does a developing fetus different from the material around it mm-hmm. right if it if it's the same fundamental building blocks that make us that make a tree that make the glass of my computer screen then what the hell is happening that's allowing me to interact with you thousands of miles away about an abstract concept that you know I hate to just throw the you know and trail off there, but. It also gets into a hard area of like 
you know, this comes down kind of like to disability rights. Like it just reminds me of Terry Shivo. Like at what point is this person like not a person anymore? You know, their baby's born with like microencephaly and they don't have any, nothing above like the mid brain and you know, they have everything they need to live, <laughs> but they uh, grow very slowly and don't learn anything um, past like crying. Some of them don't even cry. And it's, you know, if we start saying like, well, this person has free will, this person doesn't, this person have, has agency, this person doesn't, there comes a point where there's a fully formed human being who maybe has a head injury and it's like, well, this person no longer has agency, so we'll allow their next of kin to pull the plug. Yeah. And is that right? <laughs> if you know, it's still a person, but you know, and so they're not making their own decisions anymore. Sometimes yeah, they're not but- able to, they're not able to talk, so they need someone to speak for them. Um, uh, but a lot of times for a lot of people, they are still able to speak and communicate, um, but someone else is still making their decisions. Well, and and I think that's why this is, it's exceptionally important now more than ever to have these conversations and to try and publicly have these conversations, right? Because these are the parameters and the qualia that help inform policy and anybody that thinks that they can make a clear-cut decision about anything, about anybody's life their own, let alone somebody else's, is a fool if they think that it's going to be an easy, clear-cut decision. You know what really scared me? Um, So there's, you know, there's like coma wards, and those people get subjected to a lot of studies because if you're in a coma, your consciousness is probably not there, probably. Um, So there's people who, you know, they fall off a building and they're in the coma ward for the next 10 years. And they took a bunch of those people and did fMRIs on them. And, and a their good percentage active. of them, like, yeah, they could not move. They had absolutely no control over their body. But when they said, think of playing tennis, they showed similar brain patterns as a typical person thinking of tennis. And then they said, you know, think of numbers and their brain patterns would change in response to that. And sometimes it would take, you know, they would have to wait, they would have to ask the question and then wait like five minutes. And then they would see the brain activity like they requested. And for the more responsive ones, they were able to ask like yes or no questions using tennis and another thought. So tennis would be yes, the other thought would be no. And they were able to So they could visually map. Well, and, and see, they that's, that, were able that's, to ask them, like, can you hear me? What can you see? How much do you remember? Uh, well, not those, but can you see? Do you remember last year? Yes or no. Do you remember two years ago? Yes or no. And they realized that some of these coma patients who have been nothing but flipped over and had tubes connected to them and no one's probably talked to them thinking that they've heard them, you know, after you know, two or three years of getting no response, your family is going to stop trying. Um, And it really scared me 
the fact that you could be in there and able to hear and keeping up with everything and have, you know, no agency, which, so there's, there's, which, which begs the question then of what is consciousness and where does it reside? Because if someone in a vegetative state can even partially demonstrate cognition in the same way that a non-vegetative person can, right? Then that suggests to me that there is more going on than just physiological action and reaction. It's a little, it's kind of a gray area too, because like there's different levels of coma and there are people who are in a coma who can speak and say words. And it's similar to like sleep talking. And so a doctor would, you have to be able to respond. And so if every other day you speak out but it's not in response to anything. You don't respond to anything else. You could still be classified as in a coma, even though you can open your eyes. But if someone snaps and you don't look at it um, or you don't blink or you don't wince, like when they do that, um, then you can be in a coma. And so yeah, there's a I, I guess, I guess by definition, range. well, I, I guess by definition there, like you're still non-responsive. Yes. Even though you can... If they put, uh, you know, water in your mouth, you wouldn't swallow it, but you might uh, speak. It's weird. The, br- the brain is extremely weird. That it, it, it still is. maintains all of these functions while doing nothing of importance. Which is, which is why I think to some degree that there's more going on than just the physiological action and reaction. What that is, I don't know. How it's facilitated, I don't know. Um, I would venture to guess, like many things, it's a spectrum. And we've had this conversation before um, about your pigeon exhibiting novel behavior. Um, That, you know, like consciousness could be a sliding scale. It could be a spectrum. I guess in the same way, being an agent or or having will or free will could be a sliding scale as well. but there, there does every time, every time I read something or learn something new that seems deterministic or reductionist, something else weird pops up and questions the whole thing. I also agree that but I'm a little bit different than what you think because I am fairly optimistic that those factors that we don't know about, whether it be like space waves or aliens or something metaphysical, I think it's only a matter of time before those things become, well, we're going to make them physical because we're going to be able to observe them and interact with them using various tools and technology So I do think that someday we will know the whole picture. There's no way we have the whole picture now, but there probably is like 
your atoms talking to my atoms with some sort of magnetic something that I can't consciously sense, but with the right tool, I could be, you know, we could bring those into our understanding. Well, and, and that's something else that I'm thinking about too, using um, Dr. Donald Hoffman's um, consciousness first theory of reality um, that physical reality is a product of the interaction of conscious agents. If we redefine consciousness as to just being able to have an output to an input, right, then atoms are conscious agents because they're influenced by electrochemical forces and they respond to those electrochemical Now, in predictable ways, mm-hmm. right, but they're still agents. There's still motion and action going on there. Um, mm-hmm. But then we return to that question of to what degree. Um, let's do... I do want to ask... Well, you asked me why I believe there isn't free will, but I'm not sure we've gotten to why you think there is. Let's take a break, and I'll tell you when we come back. Take about 10. I can go fuss at the kids, cover the bird, um, do stuff like that. And then, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and tackle that monumental beast. Alrighty. The Cognitive Dissonance Podcast brought to you in part by kids, animal noises, and caffeine. Yeah. Yeah, I made another cup of tea. Yeah. Um, okay. <coughs> we were about to embark on my beliefs about free will. So it's complicated obviously because we've been talking about it for an hour and a half already and we're what about half halfway through the conversation um i don't think i'm in a position philosophically epistemologically ontologically or ethically to make a claim whether we have free will or not. I I am inclined to believe that we do have free will. And I've not been able to separate out how much of that is because I want to be in control of my life versus not. Um, And I know I'm motivated in part to feel that way because I fear what would happen, what the consequences of not having free will would be. And we've already kind of touched on that a little bit, right? Um, There's no purpose or point or meaning to existence. 
there's no good, there's no bad, there's, there's, why do we have heroes? Why do we have a sense of right and wrong? And I mean, we can objectively measure that, that there are better and worse ways to live your life based on, you know, happiness measurements in, in healthy structure and things like that. Um, people that are living in adverse ways tend to have shorter lifespans because the metabolic cost of that, of that extra stress on the body. Um, right. So that's an objective measurement of that. I, I will say, though, from a historical, anthropological, and psychological perspective, that I would feel comfortable making an argument that we as a species have a need to believe in free will. And, and, and I'm willing to take that argument further, too, because that's a different argument than the ontological existence, right? Whether free will is a metaphysical thing or not. This is what I was asking you about the other day. Um, mm -hmm. does, does the metaphysical need for something count as an ontological cause for its being? And here's what I mean by that. Um, I think that human beings have evolved a psychological need to feel like we are in control, whether we are or not is moot at this point, because it is a limiting principle. And by that, I mean, what separates healthy normative behavior from pathologized um, psychopathic or sociopathic behavior and it is that moral framework that we have as a species for at least 5,000 years now built a structure off of that idea that you are an agent that kind of clicked for me just now because there are people who rely on the fact that they chose where they are as uh, it loses meaning if you didn't do it yourself for them. Yeah, and, and without that meaning, what is the point in continuing this struggle through inevitably tragic existence there is no point and it's really easy to make the argument once you get rid of that idea of being an agent that we are just eternally well not eternally but for the duration of our existence nothing more than the results of the subjugations to the forces upon us why why continue Right. So, and, and we can, we can be really cynical and reductionist about this and say that all free will is, is that psychological limiting or behavior limiter to sustain the evolution of the species through time. I think that's something, not just in the question of free will, but something that a lot of people struggle with. And for me, the why am I doing this because we didn't choose 99.9 percent .9 of the society that we live in today the width of the roads the color of the lines on the road the way that our car is built 
I have absolutely no say, and I probably never will. Um, but I interact with those every day. And I think there are people and specifically people in what they feel is like meaningless professions, like you're a wheel in the cog, you sew a button onto a pair of pants that gets sold to H&M that gets sold to some teenage girl who wears it for three months and then throws it away. And I think I'm so glad that I chose a helping profession because I don't ever have to ask, like, why am I doing this? What's the point? Because I have to. <laughs> um, if I don't do my job, there is someone who will flounder and they need my help. And so that person is why to, you know, that's why I do my job. And for you, it's probably similar. The reason that you teach is to help those kids. And I think that if you lose that human factor that we're part of this social system in which a lot of people have just as the nature of their job or their career choices, I think that's usually what it comes down to. But if you take away that social aspect, then it does seem quite meaningless. But if for me, I find it kind of comforting that we're animals and part of our animal instinct is to take care of each other and keep our society going. And whether or not I chose to do that is I'm okay with either way, but it's really easy for me to accept that I have that meaning at least. Yeah. Um, but again, though, you, you have that meaning because you're helping people. And even the, how do I want to say this? The simple fact that you think that people can be helped is an indicator that we might argue over the definition of free will. We might even just drop the free part off of it, but we could at least both agree that there is a sense of will involved, right? That people can be active agents, not just passive responders. Yeah. Now, I guess now, I'm sort of realizing that I consider upholding society and the morals that we all decided on as a group, um, allegedly, I don't feel like I had to say, but um, somebody at some point, humans came to this conclusion. And I consider that as more innate and biological than like moral and thoughtful, I guess. 
Like we are driven to and, and drive on our side of the road. That's another question that we can get into too. Um, Cause I think a lot of the core values that our society, even global society operates under, I don't think those values are chosen per se. Right. Why do we have a general revulsion against violence towards each other? Well, because we have that biological primacy for self-preservation and species preservation. Right. Mm -hmm. And then off of that biological need, we have built these metaphysical value systems to make sense of those things, to be able to coherently explain to the next person or the next generation that here's why we don't do those things. Right. That's why in every single society, murder is considered wrong. Might have to nuance the definition of murder, right? Because at least in Western society, self-defense is okay. Right. Um, or like in but, Aztec society, sacrificing that child was okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's the specific limits might be nuanced differently, but the limits themselves are still, I, I do believe that there are human universals. I don't know if those are necessarily restrictive to just humans or whether it's, it's, it's a human universal because it's a biological universal or something like that. But I, I do think those are there. Um, I had, I had another thought and I think I might've lost it. Well, we will, as a species, purposely kill people who threaten the group. Well, and, and, and not even just the group either. Stability of the system. And th- this is right. the thought that I had that I was going, going to. Um, I mentioned my belief in free will as a limiter. Well, while I was preparing for this, I not going to at all be arrogant and say that I'm the first to have this thought because I'm almost certainly not. Um, But of, of what I call limiting principles, meaning that for any system, however defined, there by definition has to be boundaries and limits for that system to be stable. If there are no limits, then the system will become too unstable and it might not maintain itself as a system, right? Now, if we apply this to society or to human action and behavior, right, it still holds true in the sense that we have norms. They might be negotiable, but we have them. Why do we have norms? Because it helps stabilize the system, mm-hmm. right? Now, this is this is to... to really get into the weeds and take this one step further. And I love how the bird waits until it's my turn to talk to give me all of the scraws because I can just mute myself when you're talking and then the audience won't hear. <laughs> um, but to take this one step has, further. Uh, some important points. Oh yeah. She, she contributes. Um, thank you, Morgana. Stability of the system, limiting principles. Oh, um, 
there's a double-edged sword to this need for stability in a system. And I think that's one of the inherent flaws of conservatism that conservatives don't address all the time is um, that too much effort to limit and maintain that stability can be at the expense of the system itself. Right. So mm -hmm. for, for instance, this is, um, this is exactly why the the final ring in hell in Dante's Inferno, the ninth layer of hell, it's not the fiery inferno like we, we have in popular culture. It's a frozen lake of ice because everybody's frozen in place, unable to be agents, unable to move, unable to have any dynamism. The system is totally static and that inability to, well, this, this, this does two things. Um, it means that there can be no meaning because there's no way, f there's no active agents. There's no way for someone to place valuation over an event to ascribe metaphysical meaning to anything. Also, secondarily, there's no motion. So there's no events with which to ascribe valuation on top of either. So in a twofold way, that um, metaphor of static system or static reality in Dante's Inferno um, is true, almost like meta true in the sense that if we, if our reality ground to a halt and our dynamic system, our dynamic reality turned into a static reality, there would be no causes to lay meaning over and no agents with which to value is that it is precisely our ability to be active agents with which to A, have experiences, and B, to place valuations on those experiences that give any sense of meaning, however you define it, to our existence in this reality, even to reality itself. So what I'm gathering from that because I am a full determinism, like that's my thing, makes sense to me. So like we're at a level of understanding, like level A, and we wanna get to level B of understanding. And from my perspective, there is already a bridge connecting them. And I have to discover where that bridge is and maybe, build on top of it pretty close probably not exact to get to level b understanding and the way that you would put it is that there is no bridge between level a and level b but the fact that i think there is allows me to build my own bridge to level b and and yeah i don't i don't know how That's why I resort to the really heavy technical jargon, because I don't know how else to phrase it, the metaphysical necessity for something creating an ontological reality of that thing. Um, and I think if we were going to be good philosophers, we would say no. Well, and see, I, I don't know, because this, this changes the whole discussion of metaphysics and first principles, right? So the first cause of something, and this is, this is, a direction that other people like um, St. Augustine have taken their ideas of free will. 
um, is that in order for, and this is kind of LeBay's definition too, that in order for, for a, a willful action to be free, it has to have a, it has to, the primary and first cause of that has to be within, not without. Right. And that goes to, to, to your example earlier, the dude that stole the car. If you t strip away all of the external forces and he would still make that decision or not. Right. But it's impossible to strip away all those external forces. Um, I don't, I don't know if. Getting a little bit of static or some clicking. It stopped. Not sure what that was. It might have been my headphones. I don't know if a metaphysical necessity can act as a primary or first cause of something. What do you think about that description I gave of a static reality versus dynamic reality? I think you're definitely on the right track by asking like what the function of free will is to humans, because that question probably is more important about than whether or not there is free will. Um, Yeah, that's all I can come up with right now. Well, it's the meaning piece that I'm interested in too. Um, because we know between like the existential or phenomenological philosophers like Nietzsche and um, even psychologists. So it's... I forget the name and I haven't read the book, but I've been exposed to the ideas enough. It's a, I think the book is called an ecological approach to perception or something like that. Um, where essentially the conclusion is human beings don't see the world as objects. We see the world as the meanings and then we apply the easier heuristic labels of objects to them, right? So like a, a baby crawling on a couch sees the edge of the couch and they don't see, oh, the couch ends. They see falling off place. And as they learn language, they, uh, they can apply terms like cliff or edge or precipice or something like that onto that that valuation so like when things happen when events happen it's not it's not an object did something we at root cause experience the active event and then apply those static labels to it and then we apply value post hoc 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So in, in, I think, I think where I'm trying to go with that is that whole description of a dynamic reality, meaning that events can happen and there's active agents that can place valuations on those events corresponds with the fact that as far as the, the visual psychologist can determine that is how we see and interpret the world. Okay. That helped me out a lot. Um, so from an efficiency standpoint, that makes more sense that we would learn. What do you need to know? Like, this is where you break your arm. So that's the important information. And then later on, once that, you know, you can call that by a different name, maybe a less emotionally charged name than arm breaking spot. Well, and I mean, it's, for instance, it's easier, it's easier to say, watch out for that cliff than it is to say, if you proceed one more step, you're going to fall down and there's going to be aches and pains and blah, blah, blah. And like all of that layered definition with falling and getting hurt, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they say a, a, a picture has, is worth a thousand words type of thing, right? Well, an experience is worth a, a zillion words right people can write entire yeah. books off of a single experience that they've had right we understand the experience we see the experience fundamentally in our brains cognate that and interpret it and then we can apply those labels like cliff as a nickname or a heuristic or a meme mm-hmm. with all of that meaning packaged in with it yeah. Okay. I did not get it before. Um, and now I get it. <laughs> so I think, yeah, it would make sense to do it that way. Like if there was two humans and one did it the heuristic way and one did it, the just naming or the dynamic versus static way, you'd be better off to understand things as a heuristic by what it means to you because that's it important information yeah that's i think that's how i would interpret it it would only make sense to do that way because it's faster it's easier it's safer i mean it it does any downsides it it does align with the evolutionary model Right, which yeah. is that efficiency you're talking about. Um, and then herein too, like, and I guess a, another way to rephrase my free will question then is if something is a useful fiction, then are the consequences of its use proof that it's more than just a fiction? If free will doesn't exist, but us believing that it does to have us be accountable for our own actions so that way we can, we can like, if we're not accountable for our own actions, we can't do behavior modification, right? We have to have those accountability pieces built in. In order to be accountable, we have to be agents. So if free will doesn't exist, our 
fundamental need and the belief in it to build layers of accountability to be active agents gives us evolutionary success, then does free will exist? And I don't know how to like answer the that ultimate, question. It's like the ultimate placebo effect. And, you know, I give you a pill that gives you free will. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it worked. Uh, it doesn't matter if there's a mechanism to make it work if you believe that it worked, which in my perspective is a placebo effect is still an effect. And it is an extremely powerful effect in some cases. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's a truly biological effect. Like if I give you a cup of decaf coffee, your body will react as if it is caffeinated until it realizes it's not. But um, you will gain energy from a cup of decaf coffee just because you think it is caffeinated. And that is like, some people find that really embarrassing that like, oh, I was lying. I didn't really feel it. Um, but I think that it shouldn't be, it's not shameful to benefit from a placebo effect. Like if you thought you took an edible and you started feeling high and then you realized you didn't actually take one or there was, it was fake or there's nothing in it. You're like, oh, I feel really silly because I was acting like I was high, which is something that children do. But um, so it can be very embarrassing, but it is extremely, extremely useful and uh, is how a lot of like old timey medicine used to work. Mm -hmm. Like the if you do this, you will feel better. Like yeah. Yeah. And um. it, it helped. I mean, not, I wouldn't use it for cancer or anything serious, but it's great for like a headache or tiredness or fatigue or well, and, sadness. And the, that's interesting because that is kind of what I'm talking about, right? It is that placebo effect of our useful fiction that nets us the benefits to some degree, but that further complicates things because if that's the case, then that's even less of an argument for the existence of free will. Mm -hmm. Right, because it's further at the imposition of something else. So let me yeah. let, let me let, let me let me lay out something. Um, so there's, um, I don't know how much you know about the the rational atheist crowds, um, like Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and people like that. Um, they, they would agree with you in a lot of the deterministic biological foundation points. Um, and many of them would argue against free will. Um, Sam Harris, I've, I've listened to a lot of his podcasts and a lot of his thinking about free will, and I disagree with him, but I agree with a lot of what he says. So he would, he would agree with you on at least the, the surface level we're biological creatures subject to biological forces and those in turn elicit predictable biological behaviors or biologically induced mm -hmm. behaviors. Um, and that by definition means that we don't have free will because we're subject to those biological forces that precondition those biological, um, biologically founded behaviors. But there, there's truth to that though. Um, 
Right. So say you get something to drink. Why do you get something to drink? Well, because you're thirsty, right? You have that external force, but you're, you know, say you're not thirsty and you decide to get something to drink, right? Well, you know, you're riding around in a car with two of your friends and they get thirsty or one of them's tired and wants caffeine and they stop at a gas station. Those social forces are going to incline you generally towards purchasing something too. Because we feel weird when we walk into a store, which is a place to purchase things, right? Store is that label that we apply to the action that we see as a place to purchase things. Um, and most people feel awkward leaving a store without buying something mm -hmm. right so you have those social forces that incline you to get something to drink well how do you decide what drink you're going to get once those forces won't advertisement right mm -hmm. so there's, there's it's like a threefold thing it's the the forces of advertisement that keep certain brands or certain images or certain emotions tied to those images forefront in your mind more than others it's your unique biological tastes because depending on your genetics, you're going to prefer to some degree something over something else, right? Um, and it's also options available at the store. Now, none of those are forces that you have control over, mm -hmm. right? But I don't know, and this is, this is where I, I get, I keep, I keep stepping over myself and getting in my own way with these discussions because, but I still want to fundamentally say that however restricted they might be, we still choose. I guess I feel content. All of those factors that you talked about before you added in like choosing or that internal factor is enough to explain what happened. And that is sufficient for me for that situation. That's why you got a drink. That's why you chose the drink that you chose. Um, that's why you only drank half of it and then threw it away because you weren't that thirsty in the first place. And I feel content without adding in any other factor, any internal factor, but you don't feel content. You feel like there's something missing or there's something. Yeah. Well, in, there's some, there's a hole in that. Let's zoom out from that more particularized example, because I think where my, apprehension lies is the trickle down consequences right like i've i said earlier even the way that we have come to understand human experience is predicated on accountability And, and I don't even necessarily know if accountability is the right word. Um, but right, so even just look at the three and a half thousand years 
maybe even 5,000 years, depending on where you draw the line at of cultural evolution that gave us the foundation for the Western values that we have. Um, they're all contingent on the fundamental idea that to some degree, the individual is autonomous, has fundamental rights because of that autonomy and can be held to account for any decisions that that person makes because of their autonomy. If we don't have choice, if we don't have will, if we don't have autonomy, then, then what? What if I, and this is, well, I kind of have two things. Uh, number one, is that what you just said conflicting with the fact that we have, as humans have created or interpreted much of nature as like gods? You know, we have always said there's a higher being ever since we've started gathering in groups. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, I can put myself in those shoes. And if I didn't have any other information, I would assume the noise coming from the sky, the thunder was a God. It's a entity up there doing that because it is extremely unnatural. If you take yourself out of our modern knowledge and we've always had this inclination to, um, to do that. So are those things conflicting? Are they compatible? The fact that we're autonomous, but we're contributing a lot of what happens to us to gods. I've, I've got a two part answer for that. Um, the first part is that returning to the useful fiction piece, I think much of the motivation for us to externalize or to fundamentally humble ourselves to something like that is as a limiting principle because we do have autonomy. And with that autonomy, we have the danger of choosing danger right so we we do we have that limiting principle of self-preservation where we are autonomous creatures we do have choice but to help steer the bulk of us to choosing healthier versus deadlier more often than not we have that sense of awe to keep us all to keep the system stable um, the second part of my answer to that will be a revisit to our social circles in that I think people just fundamentally have an innate, I'm going to say desire, but I also think an innate behavior of anthropomorphizing things. And I think part of that is because it makes it relatable and understandable because we are embodied in a particular way. I'm not a thunderstorm right? I'm a conscious agent as a human being. 
I only understand the world as a human being. If I could see through a bird's eyes right now, it wouldn't make sense to me because I'm not embodied as a bird. Mm-hmm. Right. That That's why you can, um, you know, to, to, you could build a system of mirrors and goggles that at least physically perfectly mimics the eightfold optical structure of arachnids. But that doesn't mean you're going to experience the world any differently, right? You put the goggles on and you might see, but you're still interpreting it through a binocular framework even though it's mirrors right, right? It, it's still we're, we're we're bounded the nature of how we understand experience is bounded by our embodiment in that system by our embodiment in what we are embedded in right that's why those those two are um part of the 4e consciousness model the other the other two are inaction and extending right so the fact that we can plan policies and take stabs at conceptualizing how those are going to affect further generations. That's that extension piece. And then inaction is being able to act as agents in this embedded, embodied, extended environment that we're in. Right. And that anthropomorphization allows when there is even just like knee-jerk reaction, uncertainty, we fill that in in ways that our brain will understand, which is anthropomorphically, mm-hmm. right? So you're laying in bed, you wake up in the middle of the night because you have to pee, you look out of the corner of your eye and you see the bundle of clothes that you've been avoiding for two weeks sitting in your chair. What's the first thing that pops into your head? It's a person. Mm-hmm. Right, because that instantly makes it relatable to some degree. And then we can further refine it as we spend the time to nuance that and our brain can decode that information further. But the very first response is something human related. I think there's evidence um, that, well, there is evidence that our brain is hardwired to recognize faces because that's an extremely a helpful trait for our very social species, which is why we see ghosts so much, um, because we are yeah, supposed it's, to do it's, that. Well, and it's um, it's called matrixing, right? So you have the TV with the black and white static on. You're going to see patterns in that, not because there are patterns, but because your brain struggles to the same way that you can have too many tabs open on your computer and your CPU can't keep up. Same thing your brain, you get sensory overload and your brain doesn't know how to manage all of the excess sensory input. So it categorizes it in familiar ways and has to make guesses. And as a heuristic, condense that down to lower the resolution for you to actually like engage with that. Right. Um, all right. The, that was interesting. Um, the next thing I wanted to respond to was like the function of punishment in a society where everyone accepts that there is no free will. To me, I do have an answer for that. Like, why would I send someone to jail 
if they didn't choose to steal a car. And for that person, um, and there's no way to say this without sounding like a psychopath, but that person becomes an example for everyone else to learn from so that we understand there are consequences for stealing cars and we are aware of those consequences because that other person got in trouble, which is how we learn most of our punishment avoiding tendencies. I didn't learn not to stab people with knives by stabbing someone with a knife and finding out that that was a bad idea. I heard it from other people. I saw it on the news. I saw people's reactions was, oh my God, what a nightmare, how horrible, how could they do that? Um, and I've seen people go to jail and I'm aware of that. And without free will, I think that with, would be the function of punishment. Without free will, half of those reactions wouldn't be there though. It wouldn't be something terrible. It wouldn't be an evil deed. Hitler wouldn't be evil if he didn't choose to act that way. Do, do you get what I'm saying? The, the, the whole fundamental structure of morality is founded on the idea that we can choose. The reason why Hitler is evil is because he chose to perpetuate those plans. He's not a victim that's simply the consequence of the unique environment that he grew up in that takes any evilness of his actions out of the equation. And I, I think it's safe to say that I refuse to accept that Hitler can be a victim, you know, Mm -hmm. given everything that he's done. Um, and, And like, so if once we take free will out of it, then because the fact that the Holocaust happened meant that meant that it was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I feel about that line of reasoning. And I don't, to be clear, I don't know if it's more than just the fact that I don't like that line of reasoning. Right. I'm not making any substantial claims here i'm willing to recognize that i have boundaries and i don't know exactly why those boundaries are and i don't have evidence to support that per se other than that i don't like that option i like this one a little bit better i guess and that's a tough one because like like i just said just because someone is not in control of their actions doesn't have free will doesn't make them immune to punishment for all the reasons I just said. It's an important crux of our society um, to ostracize people who don't support the greater good and uh, raise up people who do. So for the most part, um, for, I don't know, like he's not the first person to uh, genocide Jewish people. And no, and, and, like and that's we, we something do, that it's it's amazing that we've survived this long as a species because we do seem to have this extremely high proclivity towards mutual self destruction and just enormous acts of violence against each other. So could you imagine, like, and and even that, like, 
let's look at it from the flip side then too. Let's, let's not even talk about punishment. Let's talk about rewards for a minute. If we don't have choice, if we don't have agency, let's, let's not go so far as to call it free will, because I'm not entirely sure that that's what we're talking about anymore, but at least will slash agency. I'm comfortable using that. If we don't have agency, then we don't have virtue by your refraining from stabbing someone, stealing a car, robbing a bank, you know, by your refraining from engaging in those, we have that understanding that that's part of what makes you a good person. So even, even the reward structures for what you're talking about is predicated on people continuing to choose that way because if if there is none of that then if we if we take that determinism to its logical conclusion we need punishment in order to create the social conditions to have less people that need punished and all of that originated in the primordial soup billions of years ago because all of those conditions necessary to perfectly pressure a non-agent or non-active agent system would all have to be i honestly think that it's this this might sound a little weird but i honestly think it's more far-fetched to believe in that taking that determinism to its logical conclusion in understanding the literally infinitely complex series of predetermined events that had to have happened in order to continue the predetermination or at least the deterministic effect of that i think it's more implausible to think that there's four and a half billion years of concurrent and specifically determined outcomes from determined inputs leading all the way up to now it's just as incredible to believe that as it is to believe in free will, consciousness, even the existence of spiritual beings. I think that's fair to put those on the same level. Um, there's a book I read kind of a long time ago now. I don't think I actually finished it because um, it ended up being a little bit boring, but it was by this physicist. And he's just talking about nature and all of the laws that he's found through physics um, and kind of physics as a way to understand nature. So it's a beautiful question, Finding Nature's Deep Design by Frank Wilzik. And it has a lot of pictures in it, which is why I liked it, because <laughs> I don't understand physics without pictures. Um, yeah, I don't but, speak that language either. Yeah, so he basically goes over the some of these incredible impossibilities. Like, uh, I don't know, everything in this book is about patterns and like highly unlikely patterns that occur mm -hmm. in nature. Um, so I think that it is fair to point those out as highly unlikely, but well, and okay, I'm, I'm not gonna, 
I'm yeah. not going to pit those two against each other as an either or. I'm just going to say that either way, it's equally miraculous, right? It's nothing short of a miracle. Either way, it pans out. Yeah, I think you're right. It wouldn't be fair to say like, well, this is the biological one. So this makes more sense and is simpler. It's not really an Occam's razor approach to say that. No, no. Um, the butterfly's wings cause the tsunami. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So is there anything, anything else you wanted to touch on? Um, I've got a couple more things, but they can be quickies. I just wanted to, to make sure that like if, if per the agenda, this is like the errata and rabbit hole section. Although mm -hmm. we had some pretty deep rabbit holes earlier. I guess I do want to kind of complete a thought about punishment, which okay. is that the idea of punishment is that you never experience it. And only a few people experience the punishment. The idea is that you don't do it. Um, if you were not aware that something was illegal or you didn't understand that, then the punishment's not going to work. The fact that, you know, that's why there's, you know, insanity, please, because without the clear idea of that punishment, you are not going to not do it. Like if I think that no one in the break room is going to see me steal someone's lunch and there's going to be no consequences, I'll probably do it. If I think there will be consequences, probably won't do it. So that's the idea of punishment. And it, so when I talk about punishment, it can sound extremely harsh and uh, it, the word punishment invokes violence, but the idea is that you never experience it, but it is there. So punishers are an extremely effective way to make sure that you yeah the goal of punishment is that you don't experience it i do not think you should be punished or everyone should be punished for what they do but it is a necessary part of the way that it's it happens you put your hand on a stove and it burns you that's a punishment so yeah, I well, just want to have and that caveat I, because it's it's a tough word, but that's what it means. Well, and and I do I I agree with everything that you just said, um, including the the necessary piece because it is that sense of social awareness. And I I talk about this with my students a lot too. Um, the reason most of us know not to steal is not because we're all thieves and we all got caught, mm -hmm. but we've all either known somebody personally or know somebody that's known somebody that's gotten caught, right? And that de-incentivizes um, the probability that we're going to engage in that behavior. Yeah. Um, so when I think that there should be a punishment for something, it's not because I want to see people punished. It's because it will work to make sure less people do it. Because of limiting principles, right? In order to have a stable system, there has to be by definition boundaries. And those have, those boundaries mm -hmm. have to be within a certain range, right? If you, if you spread out, if the boundaries reach too far out, then the same way that cell division would occur, you run the risk of systems dividing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so here's something really interesting. So when I first started preparing for this free will discussion, um, Orion decided to watch the first Avengers movie again. And there's that mm-hmm. scene at the very beginning where Loki comes through the Tesseract and is confronting um, Nick Fury and Hawkeye and Dr. What's-His-Face. And he says the line, I've come here to free you all. Free you from what? Well, from freedom, of course. Mm-hmm. To establish that limiting principle. I, I don't know. I just, I, I had that little aha moment of it is easier it is psychologically and emotionally easier to say that something else pressured me to do something than to own up to the fact that you might have just made a poor choice right freedom by definition is dangerous and we do need mores and and boundaries and norms to some degree to help reel that in and i think part of how we reel that in is the accountability slash responsibility of agency Right, and this is this is something I mentioned earlier that all of our all of our fundamental systems or the fundamental values that our systems have been built around in the West are all every single one of them are predicated on the fact that we're autonomous individuals. We have individual sovereignty. Right, we can't have sovereignty mm-hmm. if we don't have agency. Now, I don't know if we're we could continue this podcast for a solid week and not take a break and continue the discussion and not be able to nuance that the difference between reactionary behavior and choices as an active agent, right? Where that line mm-hmm. is, how do we even draw a line there because as far as we can tell it is that biological primacy that has that all happen um but in this is i don't know if you got to this part in LeBay's research where um he described negative free will so his his research and i know we we touched on this earlier but we're coming up on like two and a half hours now so just to remind the audience about um benjamin lebay who's a psychologist in his research was measuring um the electrochemical changes in neurons as people made decisions and what he found out was that the response primer or the um response potential rose precipitously about 500 milliseconds before a behavior was enacted. But the person's reported thought of when they chose to flex their wrist or bend their knee or whatever it was occurred about 300 or 250 milliseconds before. So the priming of the nerves necessary to do the action occurred before the cognitive decision to do the action occurred. Mm-hmm. Right, which takes away that idea of a positive free will that I can no other impulse decide to do something and go. Right. Your your body's priming before we're consciously aware of it. However, 
that delay time he recognized at the very least is still capable of allowing for inhibitory free will. We might be primed to do something, but we can decide not to. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that nuances anything that we've said thus far, or if maybe we just want to leave it at that and going back to your um, punishment and limiting principles piece, right? Having that biological foundation for, well, let's continue LeBay's term for it, negative free will. Um, I don't know if that's the, the, the hinge pin answer that connects our ideas together, but I think it's interesting nonetheless. It's at least... I think it's an important piece to return to in any free will discussion because it at the very least measurable gives <laughs> it's measurable, it's objective, and the timing of everything suggests that your conscious awareness of what you do is simply a reaction to what your body has already started and but it, i i think it's important that it still allows for that there is a conscious choice in that reaction our bodies might be our bodies might be narrowing the possibilities with which we can consciously choose from mm -hmm. but we can choose to not engage in what our body's priming us for we can allow it to think, happen or we can restrict that. And that yes or no is still a choice. I would also argue that separating your body from your thoughts is an arbitrary line. And because it's all coming from the same cells. So it might be completely arbitrary to say that your consciousness or your awareness of what your body is doing is in any way contradictory of your choice to do it. Um, because it's all one system, unless you believe in dualism and there's a body and a separate mind. Yeah, but dualism is problematic part, because it's that dualism, it's that Platonic idea of forms, Plato's theory of forms where... Um, Plato had this idea that the physical objects around us are imperfect representations of perfect ideas. And those perfect ideas are what he called the forms and they existed in their own little perfect dimension where everything was. And we were all just essentially a, simula a simulacra. Um, and I mean, it's interesting because again, like, like a lot of things, there's kernels of truth there. Right. So um I have a hat. This hat exists in various different forms. It can be a lamp cover. It can keep me dry. It can keep the sun out of my face. It is the material that it is made out of. It also fundamentally and separately exists as the idea in the head of the person that made it and designed it, right? It had, in, in fact, you could argue that 
it had to exist there first, that the idea or the separated form is the first cause of this material object. Um, but the problem with that is that dualism leads to it's really, really easy to have subjective biases and for these dualistic philosophies to become self-serving. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't, I don't want to say hijacked, but it is the dualistic theology of Hegel that influenced Marx's unique take of the Socratic dialectic and turn it and expand the Hegelian dialectic. And it is that dialectic that gave us communism. And we all know how well that's done in human history in the past 200 years. Great concept, terrible practice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, and, and I think that's because again, it's, I think for those in particular, it's easy to, it's easy to go off the rails really quickly. And it's easy to become, right, so for instance, there's a postmodernist Theodore Adorno, not a postmodernist, critical theorist Theodore Dormo, who's part of the Frankfurt School with um, Horkheimer and Marcusa. Um, but he had a, a concept, um, he was a liberation theo- ideologist, theologist. I think they all kind of apply there. Um, and he pushed forward an idea that you can't even define or put into terms or describe the next order of systems, the next highest evolution of systems, the the next stage in the the communist teleology um, until you've first broken out of the constraints of the current and existing system, right? And and again, what makes these, these pervasive and dangerous is there are those kernels of truth there, right? We've been talking for two and a half hours of limiting principles and how in order for a system to be stable, it needs to be bounded and limited, right? But that doesn't mean it can't be organic and progressive at the same time. It just has to find that balance. Um, Adorno would say that, no, that there can't be that balance attained between stability in progress between static and dynamic. Rather, it's only after we dissolve and dismantle the current system that we're able, even able to have first experiences with the next evolution of that system in order to start describing it. That makes sense because it makes sense, but it's used as a justification to piss people off to remind them how much their lives suck. So that way they bring in and usher a bloody revolution to get us to this fictional communist utopia that we're it's never going to manifest. Right. And I think the problem is people are going to do what is going to benefit them. And there's a really funny thing in like behavior analysis where 
rule governed behavior, which is, you know, this is something that works really well for us. I've been told not to stab someone because I'll get in trouble. This is a rule I follow. It's not contingency shaped behavior and contingency shaped behavior is much stronger, but rule governed behavior can get really weird, really fast. And it explains some of the stranger things that people do. Um, like, yeah, so you can get people doing stuff that is completely erratic. And then once you break it down, it, they're following a rule, they're reacting to verbal behavior and ignoring the actual contingencies in place, which can lead them to make decisions that are not going to benefit them. Yeah. And, and I think I think that increasingly happens. And again, this is part of what makes the critical theorist and postmodernist at least alluring to begin with is I think they were recognizing real problems. Right. The modern world, we don't know as as a species how to function in the modern world. Right. This is the first time and, you know, talking about like the past hundred years, this is the first time in human history that there's been enough food for the majority of people that we've had mm -hmm. more than enough energy, time, whatever it is, right? Um, you could look at much of the, the small scale, maybe, I don't know, small scale is the right term to use, but much of the conflict around the globe the past 20 years. Um, and it's not unreasonable to ask the question, is this what happens when you have a surplus of young men? Because for the most part through human history, we haven't had a surplus of young men because we've been the expendable ones that either go and die in wars or get eaten by the freaking saber-toothed tiger defending the cave, something along those lines, right? Mm -hmm. um, so like, they, they were ad addressing real problems. Um, Marcuse's hatred of the corporate world and advertisement I think is accurately placed, right? It is pervasive and indestructive and convincing us to lose some of our humanity in order to have an easier life. But I think their diagnoses were terrible. I think you most can of history. Convince, you can convince someone that they're unhappy just by talking to him long enough mm -hmm. um, if you want to, which I think happens a lot. Everything is fine until you're told, no, it's not. And that happens to a lot of people. I think I've started like kind of using, well, and, I don't care. It's like self-defense. Like that's a, I mean, that, there, there is that, A, there's that negativity bias that we have that evolutionarily has kept us alive, but now we don't need as much anymore, but we're still primed for it. Um, and I think also, too, like, that's part of being a rational person. When you're told something's wrong, when you're told something's bad, when you hear something terrible's happened, or that there is danger, or that you've made a mistake, any rational rational ah any rational person first thing they do is they step back and say well is that true mm -hmm. you know like okay because i mean it, it, thinking about it the evolutionary cost for doing that is really low because if it is true and it is dangerous you can address it and you survive the evolutionary cost for ignoring that's really high because it might be a one percent chance that it's lethal but 
over a million years, that 1% adds up. Mm -hmm. I believe it has added up, which is why we don't do that. Um, Okay. Um, I have kids that I need to go remind that I don't neglect um, or that they're not (laughs) neglected. Free will. Any last words? I choose to say um, uh, peanut butter, unbelievable, world map, star map. Um, as an exercise of free will for you, allegedly. Um, or, or are you just doing that because you're a determinist and you understood that I literally said any last words and now you're stringing together random words? Well, uh, hopefully those were so unpredictable that it was proof that free will must exist and no computer could have predicted that I would have said those things in that order. Um, but maybe there's a chance that some alien somewhere who's been taking notes on me my whole life, my, uh, universal FBI agent was, uh, had those already written down for me. Those are my last words on free will. (laughs) 